Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Morgan Wack, and I'm here with my co-host, the ambrosial Eddie Matthews. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a minute, but, uh, you know, Morgan's been trying to save our democracy. We'll get into that in a failing. little. <laughs> Currently failing. So yeah, I, I was I was watching all these videos of just people having dance parties in the middle of the street in Philadelphia or wherever, you know, every major city seemingly, and just people just turning out for Biden on uh, Saturday. So kind of, I think when the results from Pennsylvania and Georgia were like settled mm -hmm. and he was projected to win both of those. And so he eclipsed, you know, the two seven. Yeah, and everyone called it after he- Everyone called it. Yeah, so yeah. Saturday- like um morning well actually which we were on the phone and you told me the good news so i was like liverpool back in first back in first <laughs> and you were also like and biden's officially <laughs> win and so uh that was not my having a dance party in the middle of the street was not my reaction to biden's win um it's not necessarily because I wasn't emotionally there. It was just that. Because um, you believed know. in the fraud? You think you want to recount? You're not going to call it until. I'm just saying. The dust settles. Percentage point. <laughs> no, it's just that I don't know how the people, after the week that we all went through, how those people had the energy to like. I don't know if it's just pure catharsis, but I was exhausted, man. I was just like so relieved and just exhausted. And I just didn't really know what, you know. So yeah, felt like we had just finished a marathon. I agree. I also was not running and dancing in the streets, um, perhaps because I kind of had anticipated some of these post post victory uh, shenanigans, let's say, that have continued to today. Uh, but I mean, the the election's over, but we still live in a, a world where essentially half the United States, or at least half the voting population, lives in a different reality than the other half. I don't know what to make of, um, I don't know what to make of Trump supporters who both like accept the results of the election, but also don't incriminate Trump for not accepting them. Like, I mean, that's essentially the indictment that's been happening for the last four years is people saying yeah i don't actually believe the things he's saying but i believe the principle of what he's saying right it's not about any particular yeah. fact or piece of misinformation it's more about the idea or the representation that people feel from these views right it's it's i mean it, from that view claims of fraud and allegations that this was some uh, somehow unfair which is obviously you know untrue would be kind of anger that these people share being espoused in a way that no other politician would, would, you know, okay. that's, that's kind of the way that it's been explained to me or that I can make the most sense of it is that most of people don't even believe that there's been fraud or mis misallegation or misinformation or whatever. Sure. They right. believe that, you know, they're angry. They know that Trump is angry and this is an expression of that anger in a way that people can rally behind. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of a sound analysis of what's really going on because I, I don't think anybody legitimately buys widespread voter fraud. I mean, I think there there are definitely people who do, no, but I, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's not the majority. At least I hope not. That's true. I, I don't mean to like deal in superlatives. Yeah. Um, there's a small percentage of the population that legitimately believes that the election was stolen. That doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to be most voting Republicans. However, this is the this is what the truly damning thing to me about the Republican Party right now is that you still have most sitting members of Congress in the Republican Party who will not acknowledge the vice president or the president-elect Joe Biden as president-elect. And so they're going along with the charade that they know is bullshit and Trump knows is bullshit and most of his supporters know is bullshit. And yet this has... Like this has real ramifications for the transition of power and that being delayed and like national security information being withheld. So like people going along with this charade, potentially like it has real actual consequences. Like I, so that to me is like, I can't abide. It's honestly one of the most damning kind of watershed moments that I, I think is going underappreciated at the moment. I think a lot of people had made excuses for the Republican party throughout Trump's tenure, kind of saying, look, they have to stay in line. He's in charge of the party at the moment. That's why they're sticking to him. They essentially don't have any other wagon to hitch to. This was that moment, right? The wagon is no longer hitched and they're still following him down that path. There is the fact that, you know, half at least of the Republican party hasn't come out and said, look, this is over. You had your run, they won fair and squared. Our democracy is more important then your ego is one of the most troubling things I have seen in a long time and is just makes me even more thankful that he didn't win. (laughs) That people were claiming that there was no chance that our democracy was at stake seems unfounded given that there have been essentially legal coup attempts in the weeks following this election. Right. I mean... um... It's clear that the Republican Party who, like the reason Nixon resigned was because his own party forced him to. It wasn't because of overwhelming pressure from the Democrats. And so the fact that we truly have a different Republican Party in every conceivable way now, because it would never be from within the party that... uh, you know, they forced Trump to resign if Trump did a similar Nixon thing. I mean, obviously Trump did way worse than that, in my opinion. But the fact that you have, you know, even after he's been voted out by uh, the majority of voters and the majority of the electorate, um, you have nobody, you know, telling him to pack it up. Except, I mean, I guess you have Mitt Romney implicitly trying to say that. But anyone who like tries to paint Mitt Romney as a as a hero of this era is like I don't buy that at all. Yeah. Because of like one impeachment vote, it's like yeah, that was a good like you know that was that was a good moment for you, Mitt. But other than that, you've been, in my estimation, pretty complicit. And I don't know. And I know it's not helpful to like start pointing fingers at a time like this. But I'm just trying to say that it's a different Republican Party, and it's sad because because the Republican party has so corrupted itself, it has, is 
corrupted good conservatism too. Absolutely. I'm curious to hear, we both know lots of people who supported the Republican Party throughout all this. And we've talked a bit, we've, we've kind of said that we don't believe that everyone actually believes these allegations of fraud. But more broadly, do you think that the kind of the misinformation that it's not, not even misinformation, just the view of the world that people have that only watch Fox News or only go on, you know, right-wing news sites or only have Facebook feeds that share right-wing news. And you could say the same thing about the left. Do you think that people just fundamentally are viewing real events in completely different ways? And is there any sort of central ground that any anybody can agree on in the U.S. today between these groups? Besides um, Chuck E. Cheese. We all know everyone loves Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> uncontroversial other than that <laughs> yeah um no i don't think there's any way to communicate which is sad but it's it's also extremely diff I, like i'm even a year ago i still had hope i've no i don't think that i don't know i don't know man i'm i'm so inarticulate trying to even answer the question because i believe that there's no way to communicate um because because there is no middle ground um on the right there's clearly a middle ground on the left because we elected the middle ground guy (laughs) (laughs) like that's my point is that we you know there was 25 people vying for the nomination and we chose the most moderate one and that should be seen as an olive branch and it's just seen as a trojan horse for more progressive people it's like we wouldn't use the trojan horse we would have just used the progressive people yeah. i mean it's, it's like the allegations <laughs> of merit it's huh? like the allegations of fraud right like if we were gonna use fraud we would have made sure we won the senate too <laughs> you know yeah exactly <laughs> like doesn't make any sense and we're not going to win the senate yeah um and so i think it um the whole kind of election experience it um it just i think puts a fine point on how i don't have very much hope that any meaningful change can come from the federal government in this next four years because you're going to have mitch mcconnell still um, leading the Senate and you're gonna have all of his who have become minions who seemingly like can't or don't think for themselves. Um, They just fall in line with what Mitch McConnell tells them to do except for Mitt Romney in that one instance um, in the impeachment vote about obstruction of justice. But everyone else falls in line with what Mitch McConnell seemingly like mandates or I don't know how he like behind the scenes operates to get people to like well he just tucks into his shell right (laughs) (laughs) so um so what's going to happen is you know mitch mcconnell's still going to be running a really tight ship and everyone's going to fall in line and um there's not going to be any meaningful legislation passed for the next four to eight years because everything that biden um that congress is going to pass under biden and it could be conservative stuff like it could be we'll just be labeled socialist uh legislation that he's going to be the grim reaper for and so nothing is going to get passed this um confirmation process of biden's cabinet could be a bloodbath like that might just be chaotic 
Um, and so like if you have Biden nominate someone like Meg Whitman, even mm-hmm. there will be a narrative about how Meg Whitman's become a progressive liberal. Not that she's like a conservative that Joe Biden's trying to like provide an olive branch with, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, we could take this two ways. I want to hear what your thoughts are on Biden as a candidate. Do you think any other liberal democratic candidates could have won this election having seen how it played out now. Right. And then I want us to do kind of a deep dive into just an autopsy on what, what are we going to look back and see as Trump's presidential, hopefully only presidential yeah. term. So let's start with the first one. Do you think was Biden, you said that we, we selected the you know most centrist candidate. Do you yeah. think that was the only option? Do you think Bernie would have had a chance having seen how the States went? I was talking to Oliver, my brother, who has uh, been featured on the pod before. Um, That's the head of his resume, right? When he applies for jobs. It's number one. (laughs) And um, he is, as I've said before, I think one of one of the most, uh, one of the smartest, you know, political thinkers that I know and one who has very sound data-driven uh, insight. And, um, he said that Biden was our only shot. And then it made me think about it. Cause I hadn't really thought about seeing how the States went. And I know we're still kind of like early days and the kind of like establishing the narrative of what this election was and how to interpret it. But as I think about it, cause he was saying like, he, he was saying like Bernie, Bernie would have had no shot. Like Bernie for sure would have got beaten. And the more I think about it, the more I think he's right. Um, it's put, setting aside my own kind of like feelings about Bernie Sanders or, you know, his legislation or how much I agree kind of with that. A lot of his policies, I think, would just be good for working class people. Um, setting all that aside and just looking at how this election went, I think Bernie Sanders very much would have lost. Um, especially looking at how Florida went. He would have had no chance in Florida. Yeah, he would have had no chance in Florida. Pennsylvania, he would have lost, I think, because all the fracking stuff. I mean, the the narrative is essentially, Bernie supporters would say that that's where he would have performed well, right? Like he probably wouldn't have performed as well in in, Georgia. He wouldn't have performed as well in Arizona. Because of all the unions. Yeah, they would have said, you know, white working class voters support Bernie's version of anti-elitist America. That's what they would say. I don't think that they would have been able to convince enough voters to vote for Bernie. I think a lot of, we saw a lot of split ticket voting, which is very rare in the United States, where people voted Republican and then Biden for president or Republican and then no presidential choice. And that like really helped swing a couple of those states. Yeah. I think that Bernie Sanders, it just would have been so easy to paint him as the socialist that the right is afraid of. Totally. And people, the people who were on the fence that voted Biden probably wouldn't have, which is sad. It's an, you know, an indictment that we had to pick the most centrist candidate to have a chance. But I do think that's probably true as well. So I think like exploring other, I think Elizabeth Warren would have gotten beaten very handily uh electorally um 
Yang Yang? Huh? Yang Yang? Andrew <laughs> Yang? I can't even. Like, He's going to get a cabinet position. I hope he does. I, 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 I hope he will. Huge, I, mm-hmm. I, I have a huge amount of respect for Andrew Yang. And I, I think um, technocrats just don't work well as uh, campaigning politicians. But I think they can be, well, yeah. So there's just not like a history of success for technocrats. He's just a very fresh, like he has actual, I, I respect him and Elizabeth Warren for the same reason. They actually are willing to put stuff on the table and be like, tell me what's wrong with this policy so that I can make it palatable to you. And they'll throw out crazy nonsense. And sometimes it's great nonsense. Sometimes it's just nonsense. But the fact <laughs> that they're trying things in a broken America is what we need. And I respect that a lot. Um, and I, I hope think, they are around for a long time. I think Andrew Yang would be, would, be, would be an excellent cabinet member. So I look forward to seeing. Buttigieg as well. He'll almost definitely have a cabinet spot, I think. Yeah. If not, yeah. So I think, um, I think Kamala Harris as the... As the candidate, yeah, would have. I think she would have gotten blown out of the water. I think um, Buttigieg probably would have lost, but maybe that would have been a little bit closer. Maybe, maybe that's just me being biased because Buttigieg was my top choice. Um, but his his inexperience would have probably, at the end of the day, kind of cost him. Even though that people don't care about Trump's inexperience, he's but, a pretty good public speaker. I don't know. He he might have had a chance. I think the the like LGBTQ stuff probably would have heard him in Georgia and maybe a couple other places. Yeah. I, uh, he just, it, it didn't seem like black people were supportive of Buttigieg or like, yeah. it seemed like he really struggled with black voters as much as not to say that. He just wasn't, I mean, voters. I think he's just not a quite a big enough name too. like, we heard about him during the campaign, but literally nobody yeah, heard he had, about him before that. Too much ground to make up. Not enough name yeah. recognition. I mean, I think those were the people that were really in contention for a while. I mean, in the in the waning days, it was like you know, it was just a it was just a Bernie Buttigieg Biden race at the at the kind of end there, yeah. and then it all kind of consolidated around Biden after he won South Carolina. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I really think that Biden was just um, yeah, it was the only guy to to like give us give us a shot and even then obviously the election was way closer than it should have been it was way closer than it should have been it's i don't know it seems like there's different interpretations of these results like 538 would say that biden won pretty handily in the end it depends what you are basing that on like from the in the popular vote yes definitely in the electoral college for in the electoral college it's it was way closer than i like I liked it was scarily close um so yeah I I I don't know if I agree with that assessment but yeah I mean it's it's worrying all right so let's switch to Trump I hope we don't have to mention him at all on the podcast after this for I was gonna say four years but that's even more worrying let's say like 10 years we never have to bring him up again what do you, I think, when I say Trump, when I say Trump's presidency, what do you think people 20 years from now, like kids, like our grandkids will remember about the Trump presidency? I mean, it, it's a really good question because are we going to look at that as a blip or are we going to look at that as, as a watershed moment for the change of American politics for generations? 
And that's what we don't know yet, you know? Um, the Republicans are doing everything in their power to make sure it's not a blip, <laughs> which depending on your worldview is very, very deeply concerning. I mean, I think we had said before that essentially Biden needed to blow out Trump for there not to be lasting consequences. I think if, if Biden had, you know, strung up 400 electoral votes and yeah, yeah. absolutely demolished him and the Democrats had won the Senate, then there is an argument to be made that the Republicans would have broken and said, look, this obviously is not the way forward. The strategy didn't work. We need to rebrand. But yeah. the fact that Trump outperformed the polls, and even if he didn't do well overall, he, I mean, think about it this way. He had the exact same number of electoral votes as Trump did last time, and it was seen as this landslide victory. The perception is that Biden underperformed what we thought was going to happen. Yeah. And therefore, people are willing to hold on to this idea that you know populism and this radical brand of right-wing politics is palatable. And instead of looking at it and saying, oh, it was, you know, it, this was Trump's charisma that carried this to be more successful than it was. I think people are viewing it as Trump's idiocy and faults made it so that we didn't win on a very promising campaign and promising politics, which is terrifying because it's essentially like dictatorial populism that that is, uh, you know, being propagated. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's... So like Trump's incompetency is like laughable. And I think that's the point of- That's the scary part. Yeah, what you're saying is that the narrative might become, man, Trump, even with all of his flaws and his incompetency was, was that close. Can you imagine if they had someone competent playing the same kind of populism, like white identity politics game that, that Trump is playing currently um, it's a really terrifying notion. Um, I mean, the fact that you can, in the span of four years, co-opt a party. I mean, the Republican Party was already vulnerable because if they weren't vulnerable, this wouldn't have happened to them. So they were already really vulnerable. And so Trump, but Trump was able to appropriate the party to such an extent that you have high ranking members of the party like Lindsey Graham saying literally, and I mean this literally <laughs> the exact opposite of things that he was on camera saying yeah. prior to Trump's presidency. So like if you're able to um, do that to the high-ranking members of lifelong Republicans as this bumbling kind of incompetent, you know, like grifting, crass, like person. If you put a sophisticated person in that role who also has a lot of charisma, who's truly like, I think, I think Trump's malevolent, but somebody who's like malevolent in a sophisticated way. Yeah that should scare the bejesus out of all of us. And now they have a playbook, that person being potentially groomed for that, you know, like put like a, put like a Richard Nixon. Of course. I mean, these, these today. policies and strategies proliferate just like anything else that's successful. If you don't have to look to the future, you can just look abroad. 
you can yeah. see Duterte and um, you know Brazil's president, what's Jair Bolsonaro, and dictators and populists all over the world using the exact phrase, you know, fake news, using these exact terminologies to silence the opposition, to silence journalists, to yeah. ensure that they never have to leave power. Um, these things won't go away until we figure out how to deal with them. And I think the bigger issue is not that these things are successful. It's that they've been successful because of the growth of communications technology. And that's not going away. There is no- well, like get better, the communications technology. Yeah, I mean, better in what way? Like the, there's no end in sight or no solution to the separation of these realities we've been talking about between groups. Well, if you have, if your paradigm and your like telos for your social media platform is to make money, then you have no incentive to change these <laughs> different like uh, communication realities that you've created. Right. Honestly, so we, I've been doing some work on this and I, I think that Facebook is like the devil incarnate. I actually think that they're genuinely trying to do bad, like not necessarily doing bad, but they're like you say, like, I don't think they genuinely care about anything except for ensuring that profits continue and that they're not. Well, it's, I, I, I mean, Facebook, Facebook is capitalism at its finest. Yeah. Like, I think that we live in a country where you can't criticize capitalism. I think plenty of people are criticizing these social media companies, but I think the more worrying thing is not necessarily Facebook. I think that's terrible. I think the more worrying thing that I've seen is Twitter, which I genuinely think is actually trying to improve things. I, I think they've actually put policies in place and they're legitimately trying to stop some of this stuff from happening and they yeah. are failing abysmally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that's the more worrying thing to me is like, even if we, we had everyone come together and say, this is a problem, we need to find a solution. We have not come up with anything that is even remotely effective. We can have things that maybe take down a specific post or label a post, but there is nothing that I've seen that is in any way effective for the masses of having misinformation or any sort of misleading or non-credible information changed in a way that changes the beliefs of the person who shared it, liked it, followed it, or you know, retweeted it. They just move on to the next thing or they say, oh, that individual piece of news didn't fit or maybe that was actually fake, but the larger narrative is still true. And that to me is the terrifying thing. It's not necessarily that there are these malevolent actors. It's the fact that the system itself incentivizes malevolent behavior. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, a nuance doesn't play well on any of these platforms. It does not. And so if, if you're like nuanced, you know, common sense oriented, data-driven person is trying to get recognition on any of these platforms, they're not going to because they're going to be incentivized for, to, for the most reductive, uh, uh, quippy, like, version of whatever their point is and that's going to become just uh less fact oriented and more 
uh, I don't know, like provocative. And I think that you get into that behavioral routine long enough and you become Ben Shapiro. Yeah. I, so we talked about this before. Uh, let's switch to like Biden's America. So let's say, you know, you're elected to the cabinet instead of Yang, poor Yang. He'll help you out from the outside, but you got his spot. I talked about to you uh, with this with you a few days ago. I, my brother sent me a, a Ben Shapiro episode where he had, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. What's the, his nephew, Trump's nephew's name? Trump is a nephew? Uh, his his son-in-law sorry oh jared kushner yeah yeah jared kushner was on the podcast and he was essentially like trying to defend trump's policies trump's worldview Um, and it was a very interesting podcast and i could see how people could come away from that podcast thinking oh like maybe the policies weren't as bad as i remember and I think that's, that's essentially the point. It, wasn't, it was never about the policies themselves. They were terrible policies. There were many, many terrible, terrible policies. But worse than individual policies, it was the worldview that Trump embodied. And part of that that we talked about before was this kind of misclassification, I think, in the media that Trump believed in American exceptionalism. I don't actually think Trump has ever believed in American exceptionalism or at least not in the way that we think of American exceptionalism kind of in history textbooks where America is a city on a hill is, you know, special. And I don't think that's the, that I agree. That's the whole irony of his uh, campaign slogan is I don't think that he actually thinks America is great. <laughs> so what he thinks, what he thinks from his policies and the way that I, I've heard it explained best from his own group is that he believes that, like there's no such thing as a good country or there's no moral center. You can't have a country that provides, you know, a light for the world. Every, it's a dog eat dog world. Everyone's in competition and America just has to be dirtier and be, you know, cheaper, more strategic than other countries to ensure that they stay at the top. I think the core of Trump's worldview is winning. Yeah. I think that- any way possible cheating, fighting eye gouging it doesn't matter i think that's i think that's what i think you could boil down his entire campaign his entire real estate career his entire life to winning and losing his his definitions of winning and losing and i think that's what it all comes down to and for that matter mitch mcconnell as well and so like they're kind of a match made in heaven even though they're really different people with really different ways of going about what they do. I think they both believe in their bones and their entire worldview is centered around winning. And it depends on what, what, what's the definition of winning, right? And the, the very key point there is that winning for these politicians is being reelected or holding power, not necessarily helping constituents or America. Oh, no, 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 no. They don't care at all about helping constituents unless unless helping constituents is a byproduct of them maintaining power and winning. And I think they think it is. I think they think that being in power and winning is what helps constituents. It's this psychosemantic view that it's the all social, right? It has nothing to do with real policies. It's about the feeling of being in power and the feeling of winning is what they provide. And that's very powerful, right? That is why he has so many votes still. Right. So... 
if Mitch McConnell were born and raised in Southern California, maybe he is just a democratic version of himself, but he was born and raised in Kentucky. So he became a Republican. Like, so yeah, I, I, I digress. <laughs> um, but it's just to say that I think that your point about, um, about Trump not believing that America is supposed to be any sort of like guiding force in the world is warranted and also um, indicative of, I mean, look at his um, inauguration speech. It's like carnage and fire and brim. It's like a weird, ver it's a weird view. It's a, it's a frightening, deeply weird and scary view of America. It's in no way ever talking about like what truly makes, you know, um, the constitution or the, are the American identity distinct and, and beautiful, you know? Yeah. Now, what do you think will be different about Biden? You've, we've said, I mean, it's going to be defined by gridlock, particularly if, if the Democrats don't win both uh, outstanding Senate seats in Georgia. But do you think, I mean, there'll be executive orders galore as there has been increasingly over the last couple of presidencies. Um, do you think that Biden, he, he kind of presents himself as somebody who's willing to meet people on their turf. Do you think that he will be any better than anyone else who's tried at breaking the divide between parties? Who would you compare him to? Well, I think Obama is the interesting one, right? People, I think people who don't know enough about Biden's career, especially people younger than 40, pretty much only know him as vice president of the United States, in which he was essentially a you know, a messenger for the Obama administration, even though he has in the past, you know, has a lot of disagreements with the way that Obama conducts politics. So I think that there's reason to believe that it'll be different than the Obama campaign or the Obama presidency. Yeah. But I, I'm curious if you think it'll be any more effective or do you think, I mean, there's a genuine case that it could have been at the time and things have just gotten so much worse in the past eight, you know, eight years since the first Obama um, presidency that it doesn't matter? I think um, if Joe Biden were in, uh, if, if 2020 Joe Biden got, this is like a weird analogy, but like, stay with me. 2020 Joe Biden, like, so who the man we have today, if he had had John Kerry's 2004 spot, and let's say he beats Bush, like if he had inherited this country in 2004, I think he would have been a massively effective, like reach across the aisle consensus building type uh, centrist, like moderate president. Mm -hmm. Now? Sort of Bill Clinton without. Yeah, totally. <laughs> without the baggage, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like all the Democrats that we elect are basically conservatives. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that, yeah. But anyways, um, I don't, I don't think he's, uh, I'm, I have very low expectations for his presidency. I think that it's going to be important. It's hugely important um, for our allies and rebuilding like international uh, reputation and, and rehabilitating that and putting us back in the Paris climate accords 
and um, kind of like leading the charge on climate change again and, um, you know, putting us back in the WHO and, you know, better preparing us for, a, for the next potential pandemic and uh, some, you know, maybe overarching kind of, I think messaging is what's going to be important. And I think he'll be good at messaging and, and people will want to work with him in the international community. Domestically, I have such low expectations. He's going to get nothing passed through the Senate. I would say his entire, the entirety of his uh, presidency, however long that lasts, as long as the Republicans um, have control in the Senate. I don't think any meaningful legislation is going to get passed. And so I think that's going to be kind of like a huge, I, I think his presidency is going to be like Obama's without healthcare reform, which is like very little, I don't know. I think he has two things working to his advantage. One is exactly kind of the opposite of what you said, which is low expectations. I don't think anyone's coming into the Biden. I mean, maybe there are a few people, but I don't think anyone is really coming into the Biden administration, like pumped, like, <laughs> like we were in like 2008 with Obama. Like nobody thinks that Biden is going to win the Nobel Peace Prize and like bring the world back to the way it was, which is actually a great place to be as a politician, right? Like everything that you do is seen as like above and beyond what people expected, which is a great place to be. The sure. second thing I think he has working to his advantage is the, the far left. The prominence of the far left in recent years just allows him to juxtapose his compromises in a way that I don't think Obama would have been able to because there wasn't as strong a far left at the time. So you couldn't be like, look, this is the compromise. This other group wants me to do, you know, turn to just blow up all the mines. Yeah, yeah. We're going to just invest in, you know, renewable energy. That's the compromise. And I do think that framing really allows you to get at something, at least in, in a normal political sphere, it would. I think in a if normal it'll be enough. It would, but I yeah. think Mitch McConnell is just going to say, you, you're, you're telling me this is a compromise. This is still far left stuff. Of course, behind closed doors, he's like, oh yeah, I mean, it's a reasonable deal and it's fine, but publicly, I'm going to say, oh no, this is a far left proposal, even though it's very centrist. Well, the problem is it comes back to the idea that like, what do Mitch McConnell's supporters think? They think that any compromise with the left is a deal with the devil. Yeah. It's capitulation and to socialist. Uh, it's, it's putting, it's, it's moving the country one step closer to Cuba. Yeah. And so, and Mitch McConnell is going to be uh, perpetuating that narrative at every single, uh, you know, opportunity. And Mitch McConnell sets the agenda for the Republican Party, and is reelected. And seemingly, like Republican senators are reelected without having to deliver on any legislative promises. They had both uh, the House and the Senate and the presidency for two years, and passed like a tax plan that added a trillion dollars uh, to our national debt. And uh, they passed a crime reform bill that was a bipartisan kind of, you know, win-win. That was mainly like led by Cory Booker to my understanding. And, or like a prison reform bill. And that is kind of what they did with those 
two years of complete power. It's and not about doing anything. It's about staying. Exactly. Power, and so right? that's my point is that yeah. like they can be, they don't have to be reelected on what they get done or on policies. They didn't have a policy platform for a second Trump administration. And so they can just get reelected by playing white identity politics, essentially. Which party, so you bring together a group of supporters and you say, look, we're gonna change the constitution so we have ranked choice voting and we're bringing in third parties. Who, which party is more against it? Well, the Republican party for sure. Because the Republican party is against any sort of reform to the constitution, right now at least. And they're against any sort of election reform because right now, if they finesse the electoral college in just the right way, they can still um, maintain power without having to change at all or without having to become more inclusive or having to like reform their party at all. They don't have to do an autopsy after this um, election because they can just say, hey, next time around, we'll have somebody less bombastic than Trump and that will give us back Arizona and that will give us back Georgia and we'll be fine. I agree. I mean, I think that that's the scary part is that there's literally no change that's good change for the Republican Party. And so yeah. well, change, be... change is seen as bad. I mean, it's not even just seen as bad. I actually can't think of a, of a single change that would actually benefit the Republicans in terms of redistricting, anti-gerrymandering, any sort of reform that would make things more democratic or more equitable would be bad. So, I mean, from that view, it's terrifying because strategically, it's probably the right play. It doesn't mean it's the right play for America, but it's the right play to keep your job as a congressman. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, and, and it's not like they're shy about saying that. Yeah. They'll say this publicly, like yeah. all the time. Lindsey Graham will say in a debate with, with a, um, you know, black democratic challenger, you can go anywhere, anywhere in the state and be Muslim or uh, African-American as long as you're conservative. Yeah. It's like, I think in his worldview, if you're conservative, you're entitled to more rights, I guess, as an American. I don't even know how to make head or tail of that comment. Like that comment is so, I, do you know? I, I, so that is what we're up against. And so it's like, if that's your worldview as a Lindsey Graham or a Mitch McConnell, like they're still the leaders of this party. Or a, or a Mike McCarthy, for that matter. Throw a Californian in there, you know? Like, that's all what those guys ascribe to. I just, uh, I look forward to a day, sometime probably not in the near future, when I can be like, oh, you voted Republican? Interesting. Like, tell me about your tax plan. And I'm, and I'm fascinated to hear. Right. <laughs> and not immediately put off. <laughs> well, and questioning. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the Lincoln Project guys who are never Trumpers and the people who, yeah. you know, publish the bulwark who are never Trumpers, like, they're a vocal minority, but they are an infin infinitesimally small minority. Yeah. <laughs> they have no representation in Congress right now. Or maybe yeah. they do, you know, in Nebraska with Ben Sass behind closed doors, but it's not like Ben Sass is going... Uh, saying any of this publicly yeah 
And so there's like Justin Amash was one person who had courage in that party. And he had no, no support from his colleagues. And he's probably one person who was just voicing what they were all saying behind closed doors, but they aren't willing to say any of it publicly. It's just, this is why people hate politics. This is why people hate Washington. Like the Republican party right now is the personification of that. Like Lindsey Graham literally saying the exact opposite of what he said previously about the exact same issue is exactly why people hate politics and hate Washington. For and yet they realize politics. Them. A lot of people celebrating in the streets last Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> you claim to hate politics, but <laughs> yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about your research? I think we did slightly. I mean, I it's essentially a very. Yeah. So you got a grant to work on disinformation. Well, I've just been working. I don't even know how I'm allowed to say the name because we don't want to draw negative attention. But we've been working on tracking misinformation. Um, and it's essentially like a, a massive, highly funded game of whack-a-mole where we point out inf- misinformation and we report it to these websites and advise them either to label or take down or all these different things. And now we're doing some back-end stuff where we try to track you know, more sophisticated efforts and see how these things actually affect the spread. And you know, worryingly, as I said before, it's, there's essentially nothing that I've seen that changes so can you talk about what the difference is between misinformation and disinformation essentially whether it's it's the the difference is if you are deliberately misleading versus just sort of falling for it yourself right there's just information that's false and then there's information that i'm deliberately using i know is false and i'm trying to strategically mislead you and so Russia, Russia actually dabbles in both. They are, they've actually found that I think um, disinformation to be just as powerful as misinformation um, because it just sows discontent. Actually, the, the interesting stuff about Russia is that a lot of the stuff they share isn't even like mis or disinformation. It's just like stoking emotional anger on yeah. both sides. Yeah, totally. So they'll like start Black Lives Matter groups and be like the whites are the worst. And then they'll, they'll join like pro- white groups and be like oh man african-americans are the worst um which is you know the worst the worst in and of itself but interesting from a strategic standpoint because i think they hit the nail on the head like all information the more like non-credible you can make everything the less democracy works and so that's what russia is doing that's what a lot of these countries are realizing is that you don't need to fight democracies based on the truth you need to make it so that democracies don't know what the truth is. Yeah. Citizens are who decides who's in power. Yeah. So that's cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) We should have, I think we need our listeners to pitch us some, like we need a lighthearted fun episode. I would love for some listeners to come pitch us on something unrelated that they just think, Hey, I don't want to do the research on this topic. I want, I want to hear it from Morgan and Eddie straight from the horse's mouths. Yeah. Pitch us. Hit us up. Hit us up. I don't don't mean to say that Joe Biden winning doesn't matter because it really does. Like it really matters that we have somebody who like is decent, who can just like communicate in a dignified way and like treats people with dignity. Like that really matters in so many different ways. And so the fact that Trump won't be like spewing his bile from the Oval Office is deeply meaningful. So 
there you go. There's yeah. your, your moment of beauty. Uh, <laughs> and otherwise, so. very depressing. You, people probably thought this was going to be a very happy episode post-election, but right. instead we just depressed them further. I know. Stop dancing in the streets, people. <laughs> it's COVID outside. I know. Yeah, it's on the, yeah we're still in the pandemic. Uh, so, yeah, you know what would be a good episode, actually, is uh, about the new vaccine. and like It would what, be. It would be interesting. Kind of like, now that we have like a, a really solid Wait, vaccine. you trust the vaccine? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> My boy Fauci, born and, born and bred in Brooklyn, um, said it's good, so... I'll take no, I'm it. optimistic on that as well. I am. So we could, we could maybe do an episode on that. We have a little bit more information that that'll be a happier episode for sure. There we go. All right. Thanks listeners. Until next time, rational listeners. Peace out.